Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is our text this morning. And we will finish up the chapter and looking at verses 18 to 23. Now, as you read through this, um, the Scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, I think, uh, you might be struck, as I have been over the years, by the pervasive irony that uh, is woven throughout God's providential outworking of human history. God deals with us quite often in ironic ways, in ironic ways. Now, what do I mean by irony? Because I want to make sure we define that term. Simply put, irony is saying the saying of something or the doing of something in a way that uh, implies its opposite. It implies its opposite. Something someone says or something someone does communicates or turns up in the end to be the reverse of what's expected. It is the, um, it is the person who walks outside in the middle of a rainstorm when it's pouring and thunder and lightning and says, um, beautiful weather we're having, isn't it? Right? That's verbal irony. Right? It's the opposite of what you would expect. It's the, uh, it's the character in a scary movie who flees into the abandoned building for safety only to walk into their pursuer's trap. Uh, that's dramatic irony. Um, it's the know-it-all, highly decorated uh, military leader who, who trips over his own shoelaces in the heat of battle. Again, that's a kind of a character irony where the, the persona that they present and the reality of who they are is the opposite of what you would expect. So irony is, is something that happens that's sort of the reverse of what seems to be in the beginning to be the case. And God regularly works out his providential purposes in ironic ways. David, who has Uriah killed by the sword in battle, lives on as king to see his own sons, Amnon and Absalom, likewise murdered. Haman, if you remember the book of Esther, Haman plots to have Mordecai hung on the gallows and to have the Jews annihilated, and yet he himself is hung on his own gallows in the end, and the Jews are saved and their enemies in the land destroyed. The Jews' rejection of Jesus as the Messiah culminates in his arrest, his conviction, his crucifixion, which thereby ushered in the salvation for the world. The persecution of believers that we read about in the book of Acts that is intended to extinguish the good news of the gospel in the land of Israel becomes the spark that lights the match of that gospel throughout the Gentile world. God consistently steers the events of human history in the reverse direction from where they initially appear to be headed. Raise up a nation through whom God will ultimately set the world free from its bondage to sin. God says, I'll send them into a foreign land and make them slaves in Egypt. Save and preserve that same rebellious nation centuries later because of their departure from the truth. God says, I'll let them be conquered by an even more wicked and rebellious people. 
spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, God says, I'll grab a hold of a Jewish terrorist, a Pharisee, who zealously persecuted the church, and I'll use that man to evangelize the Roman world. Human history is filled filled with what Greg Beale refers to fittingly as redemptive reversals. Redemptive reversals. God drives the car of human history in the reverse direction from where it initially seems to be headed. And I think it's really important, as we look at our text here, just by way of introduction, it's really important that we understand that this is not how God operates like once in a blue moon. That this is a common occurrence that we see woven throughout the tapestry of human history and on the pages of Scripture. God works among us are carried out, God's works among us are carried out in ironic ways. But it's not just God's works, his deeds, his actions which are soaked in irony. God's words to us are frequently revealed and communicated using ironic language. God's truth, his revelation, is often communicated in such a way that its meaning is often the reverse of what you would initially expect. I'll give you a few examples just so you understand what I'm talking about here. If you look at Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, there Jesus says the following... He says, uh, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now these verses are filled with ironic Language. Jesus said, if you want to come after and follow him, if you want to live with him day by day, what do you have to do? You have to die to yourself day by day. Verse 24 says, if you want to save your life, what must you do? You must lose it. If you want to lose your life for Christ's sake, if you lose your life for Christ's sake, what will happen? You will save it. Verse 25, even, the same thing. There's a way you can gain the whole world. Everything this world has to offer, riches, power, influence, you name it, notoriety. And you can have all of that. And Jesus says, you will lose your soul. You will lose your soul. You who have everything will end with nothing. With nothing. Jesus' words here, which are God's words, right? Jesus is God, and it's God's words. They're communicated in such a way that that they essentially mean the opposite of what you would, on one level, expect. You see this again in Matthew's gospel, and these are just a few examples. They're, They're literally everywhere but we're looking at just a couple because they're the most prominent. Uh, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 16, Jesus says this, The last shall be first, and the first last. The last shall be first, and the first last. Now, in the preceding verses, he, he's given a parable. He tells a parable, which is just a, a story using kind of common everyday language to illustrate a spiritual principle. 
And Jesus tells a parable about a landowner who hires workers at various times throughout the day. So some at the beginning of the day, some in the middle, some afternoon, and then a few right at the very end of the day, maybe an hour before things wrap up. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same amount, one denarius, which was what they all agreed to. And they, uh, he pays them in reverse order. So he pays the person he hired last first, and then the second to last, and so forth, all the way up to the one he hired first. And, of course, this provokes some response. Well, wait a second, we work longer than them, and so forth. And so it's meant to illustrate this principle that God's righteous and gracious choice to save sinners is his prerogative. It's his grace. It is God's privilege to do what he wants with whom he wants because at the end of the day, none of us deserve anything. It's all of grace. The the thief on the cross receives the same forgiveness of sins as the person who lives for Christ their whole adult lives. And God infinitely is infinitely gracious to both because each deserve eternal judgment. That's the point. And so he says the last will be first and the first last. We all finish the same. We all receive the same salvation through Jesus Christ. But his words are they're filled with irony. You would expect the first to be first. You would expect the last to be last. It's the opposite of what you as the reader on one level expect. If you look at Mark's gospel, just take another gospel, Mark chapter 10, which uh, picks up some of the events that transpired not long after the parable. Jesus spoke this parable in verse 44 and 45. uh, uh, John and James, their mother, approaches Jesus to ask that their sons be given this place of great prominence in the kingdom that Jesus would make some special um, arrangement for them to to sit in a a place of great prominence. And Jesus responds in verse 44, that whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, to be great, Jesus says you need to be a, a servant, the first, to be first in God's estimation, means to be a slave of all. Again, God, Jesus' words communicate the opposite, at least on one level, of what you would expect. This is irony. This is irony. Philippians chapter 2. Paul builds off of this pattern by our Lord Paul, as, his writes, as he writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, continues this pattern of communicating divine truth in ironic language. In Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11, he says, Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God the Son, here, who is in view, the creator of the universe, humbled himself 
take to himself a human nature and in perfect obedience to the Father died the most humiliating, the most um, shameful death that you could die in that day on a cross. And yet out of that condescension, out of that humiliation, God has bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. He has highly exalted him. The name of Christ is so great, the text says, that every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. That's every created thing. will bow the knee to Jesus. And so the text teaches us that the humble are exalted, and the exalted will be humbled. This is, again, the exact opposite of what you would expect. There is this redemptive reversal, this ironic language that, that Paul, just like our Lord, uses to communicate God's word to his people. And, and Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, when we are weak, then we are strong. And 1 Corinthians 12, he says, those members of the body that are lesser known receive the greater honor. James says, when we encounter various trials, we count it all joy. And the examples you can probably string together more in your own mind. When it, the reality is that God communicates his word in ironic language. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect. And it's no different when he talks about the church or the work of ministry, which is the subject of our text. This is what we've been studying for the last several weeks Paul continues to employ this ironic language to communicate God's truth about his church. When we started uh, back in chapter 1, verse 18, looking at, um, looking at this whole section, and it is Paul's correction to the Corinthian church, but um, he ends the section with a kind of summary, preliminary summary, summary in verses 18 to 23 of chapter 3. And so I just want to read the text and set it in your minds. He says this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Again, in this section, Paul reminds us that Christ's church which we said is the local assembly, Jew and Gentile, this side of the cross. The spiritual temple, as he describes it in the preceding verses, is not built and does not operate the way we would normally expect. He says in the preceding verses that it's built, the church is built on the imperishable materials of the gospel message proclaimed and God's word taught and obeyed in humble dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's built on that imperishable, with that imperishable material. And it's desecrated, and he says it's torn down by the perishable materials of, of things like selfish ambition and partisan rivalry and superiority of speech and every other man-made effort. 
we have to embrace, and we have had to do this through the whole section, this upside-down reality that God's foolishness is really wisdom and that man's wisdom is actually foolishness. So, And we've seen this throughout the whole section in chapter 1, 2, and 3. These divine reversals of what you'd expect are everywhere in the text. There's irony saturating Paul's correction here in these verses. The word of the cross, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, is foolishness to the world, but it's actually God's power to save. In chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, the people God calls are nobodies in the world, and those nobodies are actually trophies of his grace. In chapter 2, 1 to 5, Paul's preaching is plain spoken, and he says, and unimpressive to the world, but it's actually a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. The scripture, he says, is nonsense in verses 6 to 16 of chapter 2. It's nonsense to those without the Holy Spirit, but it actually opens up the depths of God's will and God's ways to those who belong to him. Those who think, chapter 3, they are mature, boasting in themselves and boasting in men to build up the church are actually spiritual infants. And those who are mature diligently laboring as humble servants, as if it all depended on them, do so understanding that in the end, God is the one who causes the growth. So again and again, God's word is, especially his word concerning the church and ministry, is is filled with irony. Irony. And we see that again in Paul's concluding exhortations of chapter 3. In our text, 18 to 23, Paul attempts to bring some closure to this issue of division in the church by illustrating, ironically, that in having nothing, God's people possess everything. That in having nothing, God's people possess everything. So that's our outline. Part one is having nothing, and part two is possessing everything. In verses 18 to 20, he makes his point that in ourselves, that's the key qualifier, in ourselves, you and I have nothing. We have nothing. And we see that in verses 18 to 20. You remember last time, we ended in verse 17 with this uh, Paul giving this severe warning against doing anything that would destroy or tear down God's temple, the local church, lest they invite God's judgment on them. So it's a, it's a strong warning. And that is the backdrop from which he echoes this exhortation at the beginning of verse 18. That no one among them deceive themselves. That's what he says. Let no man deceive himself. He says if you keep going down the path of human wisdom, chasing after it, and thus destroying and instead of building the church, he says you are self-deceived. You are self-deceived. And the implication here is that there is, there is some kind of judgment that hangs precariously over those individuals' heads. And he says, notice he says, let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. This is not the work of people outside of the church. This is happening in the church. This is a self-inflicted wound that they were dealing with. 
Those who were stoking the fires of division were deceiving themselves by continuing down that path whose end was destruction. And so this is a, this is a warning, and it's an urgent warning for them and for us to turn back from trusting in ourselves and human wisdom and to return to and cling to God's foolishness. And, you know, this exhortation at the beginning of verse 18, just as an aside, it's a good time for us to just stop and to ask ourselves, does my life reflect the fruit of conversion? I mean, self-deception apparently is a problem in the church. We need to ask ourselves, am I, am I delusional about my spiritual condition? Am I for real? Has God done a work in my heart? I mean, scripture says we're to do that here. But also in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says to the Corinthians later on in a subsequent letter, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. There's nothing in Scripture that says you cannot do some self-examination. There's biblical warrant for honest self-assessment. We don't lose our salvation, but we need to ask ourselves, are we in the kingdom? Better to stop and give your gospel harness a little pull to make sure that it's secure than to have it fail you when you need it most. And Paul says, let no one deceive themselves. And what exactly, what, exact, what exactly is there to not be self-deceived about? And that's the question. And that's what Paul's going to explain here in verses 18 to 20. He says, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. So here we see the irony of the text bleed through, just like we've seen in some of those other examples in the preceding, um, uh, in the Gospels and some of Paul's other writings. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, and it's interesting that he says that because that's exactly what they think they are. Remember, that's been the issue from the get-go. They think they know better. They don't know what they don't know. And so there's irony even in that statement because he knows that many among them think they are wise. He says, if any of you is wise in this age, then you must become foolish. They think of themselves as knowledgeable. They think of themselves, preceding section, we said, as spiritual, filled with the Spirit, and they were glorying in it. They thought they had this church-building thing figured out entirely. And so they were emulating and elevating all of the things the world values, superiority of speech and persuasive words of wisdom, chapter 2 says, force of personality, proximity to power, you name it. They thought that was how the church was going to be built. And Paul points out, again, ironically, that while they think they're wise... They are only wise in this age, in this age. 
according to the standards of the present age. Their wisdom is the wisdom of the world, which he says in the preceding chapters is fleeting and transitory and destined for the trash heap of human history. The wisdom they possess was a wisdom, chapter 2, verse 6 says, that is passing away, just like the age that we live in will eventually pass away. So while it seems like wisdom that they're resting in and trusting in, ironically, Paul says it's actually foolishness. It's foolishness. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Reminds me of what Solomon says in chapter 16 and verse 25. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. What looks like life, he says, Solomon says, is actually the opposite. It's death. It's spiritual death. He says, if anyone thinks he is wise, he must become foolish so he might become wise. Again, this is the, this is the irony, the ironic language that we see elsewhere in Scripture to teach us God's truth. If you are wise according to this world, you must become foolish in order to be truly wise. Truly wise. In sending his son to the cross to be the payment for our sins and then certifying that same act as sufficient and crowning Jesus as the Savior of the world by his resurrection from the dead, God the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, has forever, as one commentator said, befooled man's wisdom. I personally like the term, beclowned God's wisdom. And that's what he says in chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, befooled wisdom of the, of the world? It's like he put a bag over its head and started punching it in the face. He's just clowning man's wisdom. God has taken man's wisdom and made it look ridiculous. Now everything's upside down. Man's foolishness Excuse me, man's wisdom is foolishness, and God's foolishness is wisdom. This is not new information. This has been saying this from chapter 1 onward. He's just repeating his point. He's bringing it all home. He's making a conclusion, a conclusion to his argument, a preliminary conclusion. The cross and the resurrection are the testimony that God's wisdom, which is the only true wisdom, has prevailed. It has prevailed and that man's wisdom is passing away. You and I have to continually let go of this urge to trust in man's wisdom. It is a false hope. Human wisdom, whatever that happens to be, or however that happens to be working it out in any given season, it is a mirage. It is a mirage. It's a false hope. It's a false hope for your soul. It's a false hope for building Christ's church. You have to trust in God's foolishness to be wise, to be wise. In other words, we have to acknowledge, and this is the point that we're making in this whole section, 
we have to acknowledge that in ourselves we have nothing. We have nothing. No one can possibly add anything to God's knowledge. No one can add anything to God's wisdom. We have to acknowledge that. We, as the hymn writer says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Not your works, not your wisdom, nothing commends you to God. Nothing. But how does Paul know this? How can he be so sure? I mean, maybe, maybe we will figure something out. Maybe there is something we can add to God in his wisdom. So on what basis does Paul say that we have to be foolish and forsake the world's wisdom? Well, he gives us the proof in verses 19 and 20. He, he restates his principle in verse 19. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. Okay? So when you put man's wisdom up against God's wisdom, you see it for what it is. You see it for what it is. It's foolishness. I remember when I was in high school, I took a pottery elective one semester. And I'm not an artist. I'm not, not creative in those ways. And I remember um, one of the first, I don't know, tasks was to make a, a mug. So I got my lump of clay, I slapped that thing down on the wheel, and I went to town. I, was, I made the most amazing mug. I just worked on that thing all class, took it off, I scraped it off the wheel, attached my little handle to it, you know. And at the end of class, I brought it over and I set it down on like a, I don't know, they had like some kind of thing to dry. And uh, I set it down next to the, the teacher's mug. And I thought I did a fantastic job. And I looked down, I put that thing down, and I looked at my mug, and I said, wow, what a disappointment. <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. That's how man's wisdom looks before God and in God's sight. It's like a sad, asymmetrical disappointment. That's what he says here in verse 19. Before God, in God's sight, the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. But again, how does Paul know this? How can he be so sure? How can he say definitively that man's wisdom is foolishness in God's sight? Because, verse 19, it is written. It is written. He appeals to Scripture. God's word has told him this. For it is written, he is the one, God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. The first quotation is from Job chapter 5, and it pictures the hunter who's using the craftiness of his prey to ultimately capture that prey. And we cited a number of examples about uh, earlier about how God ironically drives the events of human history in the opposite direction of where you expect them to go. And, um, and this is what he's alluding to. Solomon, I love Solomon because he's, he, can, he takes something that might take us pages to explain. He can say it in one phrase. He describes this sense of retributive irony down 
to this simple sentence in Proverbs 26, verse 27. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. This is what he's talking about. He is the one who catches the wise in their own craftiness. Reminded of an example, William Tyndale, you know, you may remember from church history, he translated the Bible into English in a time when that was illegal to do so that others, not just priests, but others would be able to read it, the common folk in England. And he's translating the Bible into English, into English and smuggling the Bibles into England. Well, he's not there, but he's smuggling them in. And the bishop, the Roman Catholic bishop, went out his name was Tunstall, and he was buying copies of Tyndale's translation of the Bible so he could burn them. Essentially, he was trying to extinguish the proliferation of these copies of the scriptures in English. But the thing was, every time he sold a Bible, Tyndale would use the proceeds to purchase more copies. And so in the end, the, pit, the bishop was actually aiding and accelerating the dissemination of the Bible in English throughout England. The thing he thought he was destroying was actually being helped. One biographer said that some might have thought that Tunstall, who was the bishop, some might have thought that he had God by the toe when indeed he had the devil by the fist. Paul's point here in this quotation from Job and then the second quotation from Psalm 94 is that God's ironic justice is anything but exceptional. It is the pattern with which he works. Human wisdom might deceive men, but it doesn't fool God. You cannot outwit God. We saw that earlier. You cannot Outwit God. Whatever wisdom and resources you and I have in ourselves, it adds up to exactly nothing where it matters most in God's sight. So we have to stop trying. We really need to stop trying. So verses 18 to 20 show us that we have nothing in ourselves. And we need to see that the way God describes it. Now, in verses 18 to 20, Paul uses ironic language to point out that in ourselves we have nothing. Man's wisdom is futile. Man's wisdom is foolishness. But as he comes to verses 21 to 23, he ironically points out that while in ourselves we have nothing, in Christ we possess everything. So, in ourselves, nothing. That's our second point, though. In Christ we possess everything. 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 Remember, the issue, again, bring it into its context. The issue in this church, as he writes to the Corinthian church, is that they were boasting in men. They were elevating their preferred leaders and dividing and fracturing the church because they were claiming, I belong to this leader. I belong to that leader. Paul. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. They were claiming to belong to this leader and that leader, and then they were cutting up the church along ever smaller and superficial lines. That as we come to verses 21 to 23, Paul turns their, their foolishness upside down on its head. 
He says, so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. All things belong to you. He says, you don't belong to this person or that person. They belong to you. They belong to you. You say, what? They belong to me? I did not see the argument going that direction. And with a masterful stroke, Paul shows them with great irony that rather than enriching themselves in laying claim to this teacher or that teacher, they were actually impoverishing themselves by foolishly factionalizing to this person or that person and segmenting themselves up in the church into increasingly insular and exclusive groups and looking suspiciously or even worse, maliciously on their other brothers and sisters in Christ. In the church, they were cutting themselves off from the spiritual treasures that belong to them. He says, all things are yours. All things are yours. And then he, he gives this list in verse 22. And it's, and it's intentionally wide. It's, it's intentionally wide. He says, all things are yours. Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. Cephas is yours. So he kind of addresses what they've been saying. But the world is yours. Life is yours, death is yours, things present are yours, things to come are yours. As Gordon Fee says in his commentary, these five items, the world, life, death, the present, and the future, are the ultimate tyrannies of human existence. He said, these are the things to which people are in lifelong bondage as slaves. But at the cross, God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has, as it were, planted a flag on the creation and shown heaven and earth beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is mine. This is mine. In Christ, our entire existence, life, death, things present and things to come, they all belong to Jesus and to us. If you've placed your faith in Christ this morning and you have chosen by faith to follow him, you have the life of the future now in the present. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Physically. So life is ours. Death is ours. The present is ours. The future is ours. And just for good measure, Paul ends by saying it again. By the way, all things belong to you. All things belong to you. All the things that were formerly enslaving you now belong to you as your inheritance. You, Christian, are rich. You're rich. And Paul's point is this. Given how rich we are in Christ, all things belong to us. How can anyone say, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. 
etc. Well, I am of Peter. That is such a narrow view. He says, you're impoverishing yourselves. You don't belong to this group or that group. They belong to you. They belong to you. You are not their servants, but in a fitting stroke of divine irony, Paul says, they are your servants. But they're not yours on your own or on your own merits. They're yours because you're united to the Son, and the Son is united to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whom we studied at the beginning of this letter, possesses all things. And because we are united to him on the basis of faith, we possess everything as well. That's the point of verse 23. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. God is all in all. The triune God is all in all. But here's the thing. That's only true if you belong to Christ. It's only true if you belong to Christ. If you are on the outside looking in, all the tyrannies of life still hold you captive. And in the end, though you may have everything in this life, you will lose everything and perish eternally. The scripture says that. Jesus said this about those who hear God's words. Some hear it and do something with it. Many hear it and do nothing with it. Jesus said this about those who hear his word. He says, take care how you listen. For whoever has, meaning has received his words, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, in other words, who has not received God's word, even what he thinks he has, Jesus said, will be taken away. The point is, without Christ, every one of us have nothing. But for those who have surrendered their life to Christ, they possess all things. All things. So the question is, have you done that? Are you united to Christ, who, of course, is united to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit? You, you can be in Christ right now if you're not. You can, you can, from where you're sitting, you can pray in the quietness of your own heart, and you can acknowledge your sin and your rebellion against God, and you can, you can, uh, you can acknowledge that you, you don't bring anything to God. There's nothing you can do for him that's going to earn him, uh, earn you his forgiveness or his mercy or his grace, that, that you... You can confess even in your heart of hearts that you are hopelessly lost and without Christ you will perish because that's what the scripture says. And you can acknowledge that he is going to be Lord of your life going forward and you can trust him and you can follow him. You can do all of that right from where you're sitting in the quietness of your own heart. And if you haven't done that, my encouragement to you this morning is don't, Leave without being sure that you belong to Christ. That you belong to Christ. 
Because you have nothing, and I have nothing in myself. You can acknowledge that reality to God, and you can join the rest of us beggars who have nothing, and Christ will allow you to possess everything. The implication, then, as we wrap up, for the church, as we draw these our study of this section to a close, the implication for the church is this. You might be tempted to turn your personal preferences and your preferred personalities into exclusive ones. You might think you're wise enough to tell God who can and can't minister to you or to others. You might think that by claiming to belong to this group or that group that you don't need to listen to anyone else and that no one else has any value to you or to others as God's spokesman. Paul makes clear that to cut the church down into smaller and smaller groups is not to enrich yourself or to build up his church. It is to impoverish yourself. It is to impoverish yourself. All things are are ours. All God's teachers are ours. Good and godly men and women who, are, who maybe aren't cut from the exact same cloth as you and I, ironically, may be the very people that God will use to minister his truth to your heart. And if we just had the proper attitude, if we regarded them, as he's going to say in chapter 4, verse 1, properly as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, we could actually hear what they're saying and learn from them. We don't belong to anybody. We don't belong to anyone. God's faithful servants belong to us. And that means we're free to learn from them, and we are free to love and serve them. This is why this issue strikes to the problem of division in the church. Like I said in my email, this isn't what you expect, Paul, how he's going to end that argument. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have to be discerning. We do. In fact, Paul has no tolerance for teachers who abandon or distort the gospel, and that's not all we're talking about here. We're not talking about chasing after heretics. But we have to recognize that we in ourselves have nothing. We have nothing. And yet, in Christ, we possess everything, and everything is given to us to set us free from our own narrowness to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We can learn we can learn something from others. And we shouldn't boast in men because, as we're going to see in chapter 4, they are there to serve us in one sense. So I would encourage you, if you struggle with wanting to cut yourself down into smaller and smaller and smaller groups, I would urge you to take a step back and realize that that is going to bring diminishing returns on your spiritual walk. And uh, I thank God that there are people from other denominations 
commentators, pastors, shepherds who aren't cut from the exact same cloth as us, and they have done great things to minister God's truth to my heart, to help me better understand God's word. And sometimes you've got to pick the flowers and leave the weeds. But it's not true because of who says it. It's true because it's in accordance with the scriptures. So let's enrich ourselves by having this attitude, recognizing and having this heart that Paul describes here. All things are ours. Life, death, things present, things to come. All of it is ours. God has given it to us to serve us, to help us know him and to love him and to live for him. And if you haven't done that this morning, I pray that you would not step out of this room until you bow the knee to Christ. That you would be saved so that you who have nothing might possess everything in Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your ironic words to us. Here, the Corinthians thought they were they were more noble, more godly, more sanctified for having broken up into smaller and smaller and smaller groups and pushing everyone else away and ignoring what they had to say. Looking on them with suspicion, elevating their personal preferences and dividing the church, and you make it clear that is the exact opposite. It is tearing the church apart. Lord, help us to recognize what we have in Christ and avail ourselves of it. May we study your word and not just allow other teachers, maybe of, from this ministry or from that church, but our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, in the body, that we would allow them to minister your truth to us, that we would hear when they encourage and when they admonish and when they draw our hearts back to the truth, may we be quick to hear, slow to speak, and definitely slow to anger. Lord, this is your work that you can do in every heart. Lord, may not one person leave here this morning without Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.